This is the fifth lecture in the Teachers' Retreat at Springbrook, 18th of October 2010, by Stephen Batchelor. So I want to start today by reading a, a parable, the parable of the city, and that's on page five of your text. Suppose monks... A man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road, travelled upon by people in the past. He would follow it and see an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then the man would inform the king, or a royal minister. Sire, know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path, travelled upon by people in the past. I followed it and saw an ancient city, a delightful place. Renovate that city, sire. Then the king, or royal minister, would renovate that city And sometime later that city would become successful and prosperous, well populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So too, monks, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road, travelled by the fully awakened ones of the past, the Buddhas of the past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? It is just this noble eightfold path. That is, appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, and concentrating. I followed that path, and by doing so, I have directly known aging and death, its origin, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation, as well as conditioned arising. Having directly known them, I've explained them to the monks, the nuns, the male, lay followers and female lay followers. This good life, monks, has become successful and prosperous, extended, popular, widespread, well proclaimed among gods and men. Now, again, for me, this is um, a very key passage um, in providing us with another sort of uh, foundation for articulating um, a secular Buddhism. I'm sure many of you are are familiar with this uh, metaphor, this parable, but very possibly you're more familiar with the idea of the Buddha having found a path in the forest and that now being seen as the Eightfold Path, taught by the Buddhas in the past, as a way of suggesting how What the Buddha is doing is not something that he alone has ever come up with, but it is something characteristic of anybody who is fully awake. What is not traditionally so often emphasised is the fact that this path leads to the ruins of an ancient city and the person who finds it comes back into the society, informs the king, the minister's, 
and says, let's rebuild this place. And it's also, I feel, very striking that when the Buddha comes to say what this ancient city is, he compares it to the Four Noble Truths and to the principle of dependent origination, dependent arising, the things we've been looking at. Now, I find it surprising that when the Buddha follows the Eightfold Path, or when the, in the story the man follows this path, um, he does not arrive at something that would be then compared to Nibbana. After all, in the classical model, the noble Eightfold Path that leads to the cessation of suffering. That's the standard trope. Now, instead of it leading to the ending of suffering, it leads to the Four Noble Truths. And the fourth of those Four Noble Truths is the Eightfold Path itself, which leads to the Four Noble Truths. So what the Buddha is describing here, and again, I'm, not, uh, um, I'm following this text quite closely, is a very different uh, picture of what, in fact, the Eightfold Path is leading to. It's not leading to nirvana, the end of suffering, the end of rebirth, but it's leading to a process of um, tasks, embracing dukkha, letting go of craving, stopping craving, and then creating a path that he understands to be the template of another kind of society, another kind of civitas, which is the Latin for city, and which is at the root of our word civilization. He's giving as an image of the goal of the path something very worldly, something that... <clears throat> Um, when that city has been renovated, sometime later the city would become successful and prosperous, well populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So we have here a very different sort of, uh, of paradigm, in other words, a sort of fundamental picture or a template of what the Dharma is about. And it's a template that I find far more in tune with my understanding of the four truths, with the process of conditioned arising, um, one that concerns not only how we um, practice as individuals, but rather crucially, how in order to realize the, the potential that is implicit within the four truths, conditioned arising, we need to do so collaboratively. This is not an isolated spiritual journey which is going to result in my own personal liberation or nirvana or whatever. But rather it's a process that will require the uh, cooperation of many people and again, obviously not going to happen in the next three weeks over probably lifetimes. Now there are of course in the Buddha's teaching uh, fragments of a social philosophy. And I say fragments because 
they are literally very few and far between. The Buddha's critique of the caste system, the Buddha's understanding of his Dharma Vinaya, his teaching as like an ocean in which class distinctions have been dissolved, his understanding of the person as one who is uh, defined according to his acts and choices, karma, rather than by his or her position at birth. That dimension of the Buddha's teaching, the social dimension, was not, unfortunately, ever realized in India. And, as we know, um, the Brahmanic system, the caste system of Hinduism, survived, despite the Buddha's best attempts to undermine it. And so, in some senses, Buddhism in India failed. Um, And it literally failed because it was unable to withstand the Muslim invasions of the 12th century and was quite literally obliterated from its land of origin. And likewise elsewhere in Asia, although um, Buddhism certainly has been very influential in uh, formation of certain kinds of, say, Chinese, Japanese, Tibetan societies, it's never really challenged the Um, the actual um, foundations of a social or political system. I guess the only example really would be Tibet. But Tibet, in fact, adopted a very feudal model of society, um, one which was very hierarchical, very autocratic, certainly not the kind of um, sort of democratic, meritocratic um, vision the Buddha had of the sort of society he envisioned. So, this particular uh, metaphor of the city um, casts what we're doing in a very particular light. And I think, again, it challenges us to have to rethink what Buddhist practice is. Is it really just a process of achieving enlightenment for myself or perhaps for all sentient beings? Or is it actually a practice that engages every aspect of our humanity, both individually and communally and socially, that gives rise to another kind of culture informed by very specific values and virtues and so on? There is an attempt nowadays by people like Thich Nhat Hanh and others to uh, envisage a kind of engaged Buddhism. And I think that's a very positive development. But in some ways I feel that an engaged Buddhism will not really come alive unless the the fundamental um, understanding of what the Dharma is, the core values, are somehow reconsidered. I think Buddhism is still too much in thrall to the um, Indian ascetic tradition. Um, as long as the emphasis is placed on Nibbana and the ending of suffering, particularly in the way it is classically understood, um, I think it's quite difficult for a genuinely engaged Buddhism to have um, a really solid foundations within the Buddhist tradition. I mean, a very simple example. Um, If it is the case that after death, 
beings will be reborn according to their karma, which is the classical Buddhist view, whether it be early Buddhism or in the Mahayana or the Vajrayana, then even if the world were to go up in a nuclear holocaust or were to be uh, obliterated by environmental destruction and pollution, it wouldn't really matter. Because all beings alive from the lizard over there to us in here will all get reborn in a place according to our deeds anyway. Things will go on in some other world. And to me that fundamentally undermines um, a wholehearted and total commitment to um, a concern with the suffering of this world. And leaves, as it were, a kind of an opt-out clause, uh, an escape, a, a wormhole, that um, I find, uh, unless that is really challenged, I think a genuinely engaged Buddhism is not possible. I don't think it has an adequate conceptual base to provide a totality of commitment. So, in this regard, um, again, I think engaged Buddhism is not an option, as it's sometimes presented. We are engaged Buddhists, which implies that the other guys are not. They're disengaged Buddhists who are just doing their own spiritual thing. For me, the idea of engagement is actually built in already to the structure of the Eightfold Path. I don't think you have to think of it as a kind of a, a choice you'd make. That um, a concern for the suffering of the world, which starts, of course, with our first noble truth, embrace dukkha. I mean, a really embrace dukkha. Now, that will uh, be a starting point uh, not only for wisdom, but also for compassion. And if we live on that foundation, and we never lose sight of the dukkha, the suffering that is all around us, and we concentrate our energies entirely on the world that we know, rather than a hypothetical existence after death, or before life, or in some other realm, then I think... Um, our commitment will always be to some extent compromised. And so a secular dharma, secular meaning of this age, is, I think, um, uh, um, a position in which we are saying the, the focus of one's practice as a Buddhist is concerned entirely and exclusively with the suffering of this world. If there is another world afterwards, I can't think of a better way to prepare for it. But I'd rather live and concern myself with what I know to be the case, namely that there are beings, conscious beings, on this earth, and they suffer, rather than to base my practice on beliefs in things that I, I have no certainty about at all. So, if we go back to the, um, uh, the four truths, I'd like to do so bearing all that in mind. It's also worth pointing out that uh, if you analyse the structure, the narrative structure of that parable, 
and you compare it to the narrative structure of the first discourse, <laughs> you'll find that it's the same. You'll find that the, how does the first discourse, how is it structured? You start with the Eightfold Path. You don't start with the first noble truth. You start with the Eightfold Path that leads to the four truths that are then presented as tasks to perform that lead to um, what the Buddha calls full awakening. That is the template. Exactly the same template as within the parable of the city. You start with the Eightfold Path, leads to the four truths, and then the person calls upon the king to rebuild the city, and that task is then accomplished by the city being rebuilt. I find that a more useful um, this worldly framework within which to understand the whole of the Dharma. Now in some ways what I'm doing here vis-à-vis uh, -vis, uh, traditional Buddhism is I'm actually tamper tampering with the operating system. <laughs> I, th I think most forms of Buddhism in fact all forms of Buddhism that exist today both the um, the classical ones, as well as many of the reformed ones, like, for example, Sokka Gakkai or the FWBO or something, certainly devise different uh, styles of practice, different uh, priorities in philo philosophical understanding, uh, certain different forms of practice. But none of them really question the operating system on which they run. And the operating system of traditional Buddhism, I would call uh, Buddhism 01. Buddhism 01. Like, you know, word 03. And that's actually the operating system that drives all of those traditions in common. And so far, um, Buddhism has been, in a sense, reformed by doing the equivalent of writing a different software package, which we might call FWBO or Soka Gakkai or Dzogchen Foundation or whatever it is that, 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 that tries to run on the same operating system. Engaged Buddhism in particular I think uh, does not run very well on the, the pre-existing operating system and arguably also some of the mindfulness-based stress reduction and such psychotherapeutic applications of Buddhism also I think have difficulty running optimally on the pre-existing operating system. We saw this with the craving causes suffering business. That has to be, I think, quite uh, distorted almost to enable it to function as a, um, a, as a way of, say, dealing with a client in a psychotherapeutic situation. Um, where, where craving causes suffering doesn't quite mean at all what it's classically meant in the operating system. Now this might be a hopelessly um, arrogant and um, unrealistically ambitious project um, to somehow tamper with the operating system itself, but um, I find myself in a position where I can't do anything else. This is where my, my thought, my reflection, my practice have led me. Like it or not, this is what I find myself doing. And I do feel that if Buddhism is to survive in a vital way that doesn't just address the concerns of small 
meditation groups and religious communities. If it's going to fulfill its potential in terms of addressing the far greater uh, crises and issues of our, um, of our civilization, I think it has to rethink itself uh, or fall. Uh, um, how do you say that? On the base. On the base. It has to basically rethink itself. Let's go back to the four truths, just so that we can see this in, in perspective. For me, this whole process, uh, and again, for the Buddha too, fortunately, begins with the practice of fully knowing Dukkha. And we went into that yesterday, so I'm not going to go over that again. Except perhaps to add just a, one more reflection concerning something I mentioned but never developed yesterday. I feel that fully knowing Dukkha both has an element of depth, which we achieve through meditation, contemplation, reflection, cultivation of awareness, and also a dimension of breadth that is the opening of our minds and our hearts to the suffering that infinitely transcends our own. That's the foundation for compassion, just as the depth experience is the foundation for wisdom. So wisdom and compassion are implicit in the first noble truth. But I would add another dimension. And I mentioned it yesterday as what we might call an aesthetic dimension. Paradoxically, perhaps, I find that the more that one deepens one's insight into dukkha, the more the world appears to one as wondrous and sublime. Uh, the beauty of the world is revealed. Uh, the radiance of the world is revealed. And I think this happens because we are, um, because of the very problem of craving. Because of the, cog or especially when craving is thought of, or is replaced even by the notion of ignorance. That, again, shifts the bias very much towards a, a cognitive approach. Namely, that if we free ourselves from ignorance, we will somehow come to see things correctly as opposed to in a distorted fashion. And that, I think, is the sort of explanation you'll get in the Abhidharma and in most Buddhist philosophy. The problem with that is I think it's only recognizing a very narrow band within um, the, the problematic of craving and ignorance. <coughs> I feel that craving or ignorance, let's think of them almost as, a, as one thing, if you like, um, don't only have a distorting effect on our experience, namely they put our understanding and our perceptions out of, out of sync with what is in fact the case, but also they have an anaesthetic property. The anaesthetic property is that this grip of self, this, this, this constriction around me, also closes me down to the suffering of others. And I think that the whole strategy of craving and selfishness, self-centeredness, is not just a kind of a, a negative habit, but it is actually something that shields us against the enormity of the world's suffering. And um, you get this in Shantideva. In Shantideva's whole approach of exchanging self for others and so on. 
is very much about um, seeing through the fiction of an isolated um, self-essence or self-identity as a means to breaking down uh, our, our, uh, our refusal or our resistance uh, to empathizing with the suffering of the world. And again, I think this is implicit in the first noble truth, that fully knowing dukkha um, is about opening ourselves empathetically to the world, not just um, arriving at some brilliant insight into the nature of reality. And another dimension is that as the, 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 the grip of, of craving uh, begins to weaken and erode, it also opens up the world in another way aesthetically. Now the implication of this, and perhaps the way to best approach this, is to reflect on why is it that the world so often appears to us to be dull, opaque, flat, boring, listless? What is it that um, awakens a, a sense of, of wonder and, and awe in face of this extraordinary thing that's going on around us all the time? I think it's probably the experience of many people when you go on a silent meditation retreat, particularly one in which you're just cultivating awareness, is that you come out of the meditation hall and you walk into the garden and the whole place seems more radiantly alive, uh, somehow more vivid, the colours feel brighter. You find yourself able to contemplate a leaf um, uh, in a kind of awestruck fashion. Now, Indian Buddhism really doesn't talk about this at all. It's only really when you get into the, the, the Chinese traditions, and particularly in Zen, that there is a, a valuing of aesthetic experience. And my own sense, again, as much through practice as through theory, is that the more that um, I look deeply into the nature of life, of dukkha, and the more that uh, that leads to a letting go of some of those habitual holdings and graspings, the more the world uh, is enriched. Um, Don Cupid calls, um, uh, calls it brightness, uh, the experience of brightness, of vividness. And um, another way of, of looking at this too is to consider what works of art move us most deeply. Um, I'm a great uh, reader of, 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 of literature, particularly for both 19th century and 20th century literature. And I think this is an extraordinarily powerful avenue into fully knowing dukkha. You could even argue, why bother with Buddhism when you've got war and peace? <laughs> I recently read War and Peace over the summer. And uh, it's an extraordinary piece of work. And it's not, as Buddhists will often, you know, Buddhist monks will often say, reading novels is just entertainment, it's a distraction. Chances are they've never read a novel, or they've never read a decent novel. Or let's say a novel that really addresses um, the question of what it means to be human. And in our literary tradition, I think we have <coughs> an extraordinary resource um, of writings uh, that bring us very much into the same reflections, the same experiences 
that we might get on a retreat. It's not going to be quite the same because we're reading it rather than sitting and contemplating it. But it's an opening. And I feel the same too about the visual arts. Uh, the works of, of visual art that, that, that in a sense affect me most deeply are not those that are just pretty, but rather are actually um, sometimes very dark. Uh, I, I think my favourite example are the latest self-portraits of Rembrandt. Um, Rembrandt as an old man looking at himself from the canvas. Um, these are in the Rice Museum in, in Amsterdam. Um, these are profoundly moving uh, visions of someone who has fully known Dukkha. They're not, um, you know, high, laughing cavalier kind of stuff. Or, again, in music, uh, in the classical musical traditions, both some of the religious music of Bach, uh, some of Beethoven's later works, um, Mozart, Schubert, and so on, and right up to contemporary uh, composers. A, a serious artist is not concerned with distracting or entertainment in any sense, but rather serious art is there to challenge us, is there to uh, try to get us to see the world anew, to look at the world differently. And I think that's also the challenge of anyone who aspires uh, to work or live as an artist, whether that be a writer, a poet, um, or whatever. I mean, poetry too. I think some of the great poetry of the last century was very much about trying to put into words uh, the dukkha of life, everywhere from Eliot to Larkin to Wallace Stevens to Sylvia Plath. Uh, all of this are sustained reflections and I think deeply insightful words on the nature of our condition. So uh, here, it's, it's at this point I feel that uh, the, this, the, the, the fully known Dukkha has three dimensions. It has a cognitive dimension that we come to know things more clearly, we see things more more may 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 be more truthfully. It has an emotive or an affective dimension, which has to do with the the empathetic resonance with the suffering of the world, and it has an aesthetic dimension, and that it opens up uh, the beauty, the sublimity is I think a much better word. Uh, the idea of the sublime. Are you familiar with this? The notion of the sublime. Uh, I don't have time to go into it now, but if you read the introduction to my book, Verses from the Centre, that is essentially a, 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 a meditation on the sublime. Uh, the sublime, um, uh, at least as defined by Edmund Burke, is that which uh, exceeds our capacity for representation. It, it, it debordes, it, it goes, it, it overflows our capacity to conceptualise. And so the experience of the sublime is defined as that experience of that which is both fascinating and terrifying at the same time. Uh, this is what the Romantic poets, words with Coleridge Keats, were primarily concerned with, was trying to evoke the experience of the sublime. And again, I feel that that is getting very close to 
or let's say it's giving another dimension to the experience of fully knowing dukkha. It's both fascinating and tragic at the same time. I could go on and on, but we're running out of time. Now, again, coming back to what I was saying yesterday, I think it's all of these dimensions together uh, when uh, incorporated or integrated through our, let's say, our meditation or through our our life, um, that we begin to... uh, uh, our primary experience of the world becomes more and more one that acknowledges these dimensions. And the more that one lives from that vantage point or perspective, the less that grasping, craving, selfishness, all of these things really have any room anymore. We don't have to get rid of them in a sort of violent way, (coughs) repress them or deny them. But rather, if we saw the world in this way, they would fall away of their own accord. Uh, it reminds one perhaps of Dogen's saying, uh, he describes his awakening as the dropping of the falling away of body and mind. Something drops off. And I think the letting go of craving is about the falling away of things that in a sense are shed like the snake of a skin because they just don't have any room in your life anymore. You, you don't have to force yourself not to be attached the whole idea of being attached to something impermanent and uh, and fragile and, uh, um, in a sense, very temporary is just a kind of waste of time. You just don't do it anymore. Of course, old habits die hard. Uh, I think we have to be psychologically realistic that no matter how deep our intuitions or insights have been, how passionately we are committed to these values, we still find ourselves doing silly, trivial things. And maybe there's a room for that. It's a kind of a, lets off a bit of steam every now and again. Probably worthwhile. But we no longer really believe in it. We, we don't take it so seriously. We might be rather more ironic in terms of our, our fallibilities and our silly habits. But all of this leads to basically a turning, a fundamental turning around in one's Uh, in the basis for one's life. And I've spoken of this really as as, as those moments that are technically described as a stopping craving. Need to perhaps say something about this too. I think it is the case that when one goes deeply into certain meditative uh, states, uh, when one is very open and present and stable within oneself, one feels and experiences Uh, a genuine release, a genuine freedom from the compulsions of our past, the compulsions that are embedded in us through our social conditioning, our biological conditioning, we find a deep inner peace. And this, I think, is very clear. This comes back to your point, Victor, about the, the, the stilling of all formations. I do think those kinds of experiences are very important. But they may not occur for everybody. And they might, it might be more of a kind of gradual, uh, very slow changing of perspective that you don't really even notice so much. That um, the Buddha actually describes his teaching as a gradual path. If you look at the analogy of the ocean that you've got in your text, 
He says, just as the as the as, as the as, as the, um, the the ocean floor slopes down gradually, so do is my path one that gradually begins to um, uh, infiltrate your deepest perceptions of yourself in the world in such a way that you, the subject, possibly don't even notice it going on. And you probably may only notice it when you find yourself back, say, in a... I mean, I found this often, meeting old childhood friends. uh, Meeting someone you haven't met for 20 years. And uh, suddenly finding that all the expectations, all the memories you had of your relationship have changed. You're You're not the same person anymore. And you notice it often on such occasions as that. That's very helpful. But I think as the subject of these experiences that are taking place incrementally over months and years, you are perhaps in the you're, you're perhaps the the, the 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 worst person to have a clear sense of what's going on. Which sounds strange, perhaps, but I think it's true. We have to remember also the Buddha never went to the ocean. And he would have found out, had he done so, that what he said isn't quite true. We all know oceans, things that suddenly drop like this. Which I think is, is actually a better image. Because I think there are moments in one's practice where there are sudden shifts. What Zen calls satori, kensho, breakthrough. Uh, and, and that's very important. But again, we must be careful not to think that meditative experience is just having these, these kind of very special, uh, radical breakthrough moments, and then spending the rest of one's life trying to get to get them again. Uh-uh. They are they are moments within a process. They're not ends in themselves. We have to be very careful about that. And this um, uh, turning about, uh, this stopping, this uh, stilling is also this nibbana, uh, realizing that you are unconditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion. Again, sometimes it's, usually it's phrased, you experience the unconditioned, which is just the wrong way to say it, even though the texts do. When the Buddha describes the unconditioned, as we've seen already, he sees it as being unconditioned by these things. And the value of that is not that that experience is such a wonderful thing, that's all you need to ever do. This is perhaps the experience the Buddha found himself in beneath the tree. What do I do now? That that experience of not being intrinsically conditioned by those impulses and forces is the first step in living your life differently. And that's why the Buddha describes this process of moving from the stopping into the path as um, entering the stream. And I think that's not, um, I mean, this is, again, completely in accordance with what I was taught um, in my Tibetan studies, in which we used Savastavada texts and others. Um, this is clearly what is going on. And again, to me, this notion of entering the stream, of moving from the first glimpse of Nibbana to the path, conforms, I think, very well to this particular model here. It points to the stopping of craving being the condition that enables us to enter the path, rather than 
the path being primarily about getting to this experience of Nibbana. Now when we enter the path, enter the stream, um, we in a sense um, find ourselves living our life from a radically new perspective. And again, this is again something very fragile. Uh, it's something we have to work at. Uh, something we keep having to return back to fully knowing dukkha, letting go of craving, and moving from that suspension of craving, that unconditioned by craving state, into this way of life. Now the fact that um, the stream refers to the Eightfold Path, um, again, is quite canonically uh, um, evident. Uh, Sariputta, this is page 33 now, Uh, Sariputta, this is the Buddha speaking, we say the stream, the stream, now what Sariputta is the stream? This noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is the stream, that is appropriate seeing, etc. Sariputta, this is said, a stream enterer, a stream enterer, what now Sariputta is a stream enterer? One who possesses this noble eightfold path. Venerable Sir, it's called a stream entry. Um, now again, this is not generally how you may find this stream entry idea presented. The, um, but nonetheless, this I feel is actually um, presenting it very much within the framework of this kind of model. And what does it mean, though, to one who possesses this noble eightfold part? What does it mean to possess something? Again, I need to double-check this with the Pali, which I haven't, so I don't know which word is being used. But I'm trusting this is more or less correct. To possess something means that it becomes your own. If I possess an Apple iPad, which I do, it's my own Apple iPad. It's not anybody else's. It's my own. (laughs) <laughs> and of course that gives rise to all kinds of problems because I sort of grasp at it and so on but the point is that um, uh, it's at this point that in a way your practice becomes authentically your own practice you're not now at a point where you have to constantly defer to the authority of somebody else um, it's interesting also that the word, the German for authentic is eigentlich, which means, again, one's own. Something is, it's an authentic practice because it is your own practice. It's an authentic understanding because it's your own understanding. So authenticity is about integrating these values and these ideas and these practices into the fabric of your own life so that they become your own. They're not something you're kind of doing uh, because someone else has told you to do it or because you have faith in your teacher or whatever. But rather, at this point, the practice becomes your own. And this is again from the... Again, skip one passage and then go to the bottom of the page. There are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women lay followers my disciples, clothed in white, in other words, not monks, nuns, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, 
become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in my teaching. This again would be a kind of a core um, foundational text for a secular Buddhism. Because here we have the Buddha quite unambiguously declaring that men, women, lay followers, even those who still enjoy sexual pleasures, nonetheless have become independent of others in my teaching. In other words, which is another, uh, um, it's another stock phrase for entering the stream. This is what it, it, it means. Uh, it, it mirrors exactly the idea of possessing this noble eightfold path. It's become your own. You've become, in a sense, at this point, your own authority. Now, this doesn't mean that you then don't bother reading anything or listening to anybody else. Now, that is clearly not the case. But in a very uh, central and crucial way, you're now kind of on your own. Uh, there's again a passage, I don't know whether I... I think it's somewhere in my collection here. Um, I can't find it for a moment. Um, where the Buddha says, after a monk or a nun has undergone a, an initial period of training, it's usually considered to be about five years, then he says, you should go forth into the world for the welfare of, of the many, out of compassion for the many, and let no two of you follow the same path. Again, it's very much an affirmation of individual <coughs> responsibility, but an individual responsibility which is rooted in a sense of a particular uh, vision of life, of this kind of vision. Um, it's not just uh, sort of, it's not at all similar to the kind of Western notion of the individual self, just emotively choosing whatever he or she likes to do. This is embedded within a framework of values. Now, what are these values in which it is embedded? Well, if we come back to the previous page, on the, right under the heading stream entry, here we find uh, a text which is in the, the Sotapati Sanyutta, the Connected Discourses on Stream Entry, which is the longest sustained presentation of stream entry in the Pali Canon. It's the penultimate section of the Sanyutta Nikaya. You're familiar more or less with the Sanyutta Nikaya? The Connected Discourses of the Buddha. Great big fat blob collection of texts. And it's also interesting, as a sort of footnote, that the, there, are, there are, I think, 52 sections in the Sanyutta Nikaya. 51 is stream entry, and 52 is the Four Noble Truths. So again, you see the same pattern. You see stream entry precedes the Four Noble Truths. And it's again, I think, remarkable that the whole of the, all of this, this huge great text culminates in the Four Noble Truths. Look at the structure of the Satipatthana Sutta, the very last of the Dhamma, of, 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 of the meditations of mindfulness of Dhamma is Four Noble Truths. All of these teachings conclude with the notion of the Four Truths. But remember, the Four Truths are an ongoing process. This is the thing that is most important to grasp. 
that the, the path that you create or cultivate, remember the path is not laid out there for you to follow, you have to create it, you have to bring it into being in all aspects of your life, that this leads you to mindfulness and concentration. And then you have to ask, mindful of what? Concentrating on what? It brings you right back to the first truth. You are mindful of dukkha and all of the implications of dukkha. Anicca, anatta, shunyata and dukkha itself. So at every turn of the wheel, as it were, you return back to the first truth, which is the source of what hopefully deepens your insights there that allows yet more falling away, which allows you to return to the path renewed and perhaps refreshed and deepened until you keep going. And then you pay attention again when you to the suffering of the, of, the moment, of the moment. But in terms of the value structure of the Eightfold Path, uh, this I think is clearly stated in this passage here. Monks, a noble disciple who possesses four things, is a stream enterer. I'm not going to go to the next one. What four? Here, monks, a noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha, and then he defines that. Confirmed confidence in the Dhamma, confirmed confidence in the Sangha, and he possesses the virtues that are dear to the noble ones. Now, I'm sure most of you immediately think, oh, well, wait a minute, that's taking refuge. And confirmed confidence is basically faith, sadha, trust. So this practice is one that is founded on a certain confidence in what is possible for you as a human being to realize. And um, here you have basically a sense of the person as, uh, or let's say the, the Buddhist understanding of the person is a, is a person is capable of being as awake as the Buddha. But to do that requires the practice of the Dhamma in other words, the realization of the insights and the virtues, the skills, the perspectives that bring you to that awakening. And that is achieved not just on your, in, in, in your own sol solitary experience, but it's achieved through your confidence in your community. So Buddha, Dharma, Sangha are not... I mean, taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha is not just about uh, performing the entrance right to the Buddhist club, which is often how it's presented. And once you've done it, you've done it, and that's great, and you'll recite the refuge mantra once or twice a day. Something Geshe Rabton told me that always stuck with me, he says, every time you practice the Dharma, you are taking refuge. Um, that you are entrusting yourself to the values that have become primary for you. Now when you enter the stream, it's, that's at the point where you actually experience the Dharma for yourself. It's no longer a set of doctrines or beliefs or exercises. It's something you now know for yourself. So taking refuge in the Dharma 
is really living your life according to what you now internally have realized for yourself. It has as its goal the Buddha, and it has as its um, social framework, its communal environment, uh, those friendships, those relationships with others that support you in this practice. Now it might seem um, in some it might seem strange that on the one hand the Buddha is saying you have become independent of others in the teaching and then saying you have firm confidence in the Sangha. I don't think that's a contradiction at all. In fact, um, what it makes us reflect upon is what, what is the function of the community? What is the function of the Sangha? The function of the Sangha is to enable each individual member of that community to flourish in their own way. That's a sangha, a community, as opposed to a collective, which is basically um, join, is being part of a group of people who all believe exactly the same thing. Now this can be either in a Marxist-type collective or a, a Christian or an Islamic or a Buddhist collective, which is um, not um, an environment in which each individual person is encouraged to realize their own individual potential to carve out their own path as it were, to create their own path but rather the primary value is conformity and this of course bedevils all religious institutions all, you know, you start out with some visionary teacher, you start out with a great sense of, um, of possibilities being opened up and then sometimes even within a few years or almost ine inevitably after that teacher's death the whole the vitality of the community has been replaced by the conformity of a collective that is concerned with preserving a certain body of doctrines making sure the thing doesn't die out that's not a living community anymore it's become dead in certain good things are going to happen if those ideas and practices are good, but it's not a living thing so much anymore as basically a kind of a pickle jar. <laughs> a pickle jar, yes. A, a jar, like a, a, a Newton jar, um, a bocal, in which you put things like, you know, prunes or, uh, or um, carrots or something, and you you preserve them so they don't rot you keep things the same but unfortunately pickling I don't think is quite what the Buddha was on about <laughs> but perhaps we should just just before we end um, something else I wanted to say yeah I think also what this points to um, is that the, 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 the model as it were, for um, the, the practice is not the Arhat, but the Buddha. You see, I think the problem with early Buddhism is that they lay far too much emphasis on the Arhat. The Arhat is the person who seeks basically to completely eliminate all the things that cause um, rebirth and to then achieve this uh, cessation, uh, not just of craving, but actually of life itself. Um, in Nibbana. And I find the model of the Arhant really rather cold and uninspiring. I always have. 
But this model, particularly once one puts to one side this whole business of rebirth and everything like that, then the whole idea of the Arhat um, is rather transformed. But the emphasis, nonetheless, is about... The emphasis is primarily on personal liberation. Now, the model, I think, the, 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 the role model that would better fit the way I'm presenting these things here would be the Buddha himself. In other words, the way the Buddha actually lived and related and worked and functioned in the world. Right? Sometimes Mahayana people criticize the early canon for saying so little about compassion or love. I mean, it's there, but it's certainly not a central theme. But what they fail to notice is that the teaching on compassion, or even the teaching on bodhicitta, is found not in what the Buddha says, but in what the Buddha does. That the Buddha's life is the most powerful teaching on compassion. In other words, the Buddha models a way of being in the world um, that is a total realization of a selfless, compassionate generosity to engage with the structures of his world. Now, part of the problem is that in Theravada Buddhism and in Mahayana Buddhism, the Buddha has become rather absurdly idealized into this kind of God-man hybrid um, who is completely perfect, doesn't even have a thought going through his mind, um, which has become humanly essentially impossible. It's a very, it's a dehumanization of this person. And one of the things that you'll, if you've read my recent book, you will notice is that the bulk of the book is actually about, uh, is about recovering the humanity of the Buddha. There's far more data than I ever imagined in the pages of the Pali Canon that allow us to reconstruct a much more precise biography of the Buddha, particularly from his enlightenment until his death, 45 years. And we can see quite clearly that the Buddha was not just a kind of saintly figure who wandered around North India giving these brilliant Dharma talks, but rather he was someone who was very crucially engaged with creating a community, with establishing his teaching, um, with uh, dealing with all manner of very problematic people. Uh, kings, merchants, some of his family. You know, sometimes the Buddha's criticized for having left his family. Well, he did. He went off for a few years, but then he came back and he spent much of his time dealing with the struggles within his family. It's true. He was really, he was very much involved with his family, his extended family. And argue, it's actually because of the behaviour of his cousins that um, his whole kind of world broke down. I mean, read the book, I'm not going to go into that story here. But you get a very tragic sense of the Buddha's life when you see it in terms of the events that we can quite reliably reconstruct, um, particularly towards the end of his life when everything fell apart. And he was kind of abandoned and exiled and on the road. And that's very moving. And it's captured, I think, quite powerfully in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, Diganikaya 15 the story of the Buddha's last months. <coughs> and so it is that figure that I find the most um, inspiring. That to, the, Buddha, the Buddha's own, the, the historical Buddhas, 
modelling of his teaching in the context of the conflicts and struggles of his time. Unfortunately, the, the, the idealised Buddha uh, is not much use, really, as a model for how to lead a human life. So I think the Mahayana was correct in critiquing the prominence of the Arhat, but I think it did not sufficiently recover the humanity of the person of the Buddha. And um, my problem with Mahayana Sutras is that they are highly idealized. They're not occurring in a, in a historical setting, a historical place. They're usually occurring on, on, on a mythologized Vulture's Peak. You know, when I first read the Lotus Sutra, I had the impression that Vulture's Peak must be a big place. When I actually went to Vulture's Peak, you find you can maybe squeeze in 30 people max on the little spur of the ridge where Vulture's Peak is held. It, it brings everything right down to the human scale again. And I think Buddhism, in many respects, has lost the human scale. And has idealized the Buddha, idealized the enlightened ones of the past, to such a degree that they've often become completely out of reach. And we are thereby diminished. We are thereby, uh, in their light, we feel small, um, insignificant. And our only real choice is to surrender ourselves to their authority. Okay, I'll stop here.